like a big cat and says that she's a conjugated verb. She's been doing the direct object with a second person pronoun named Phil. And when she walks into the room, everybody turns. Some kind of light is coming from her head. Even the geraniums look curious. And the bees, if they were here, would buzz suspiciously around her hair, looking for the door in her corona. We're all attracted to the perfume of fermenting joy. We've all tried to start a fire. And one day, maybe it will blaze up on its own. In the meantime, she is the one today among us most able to bear the idea of her own beauty. And when we see it, what we do is natural. We take our burned hands out of our pockets and clap Tony So this is my new koan, my existential life riddle. Not what is the sound of one hand clapping, but rather what is the sound of two burned hands clapping? Does it maybe sound like this, you know, just the fingertips lightly percussing or something else? No palm action for these paws, hands burnt over a span of life or by or through eros, which is, as you probably know by now, a particularly inflammatory energy in the best and worst sense of that word. Eros. What a fierce mofo. And rarely, in my experience, rarely fair in the kind of relating it offers us through words and gestures, facial expressions, and in non-COVID times, the solace and sensual singe of physical touch. Yeah, I, I know this sounds weird, but it's actually just the last sound amplified. That's all it is. On the first day of Christmas, my true love sang to me a fully enlightened human being. On the second day of Christmas, my true love sang to me and desist comes and a fully enlightened human being. One makeshift response to this koan is a kind of relationship MOT, which is to say, if we can just understand how our hands got to be so charred, we might be able to find ways to let the scalded skin recuperate, even heal. About a week ago, Al suggested it would be fun well, that's what I heard, not sure if it uh, was necessarily the intention there, to outline and synopsize through a voice note some kind of, well, synopsis of our past love and romance connections. 
The plan was to keep it simple and also kind and to focus on a few, a few clear criteria, which were how we met this beloved of the past, what was it that attracted us, the people we were then, to the person that that person was then, and what form did the relationship take? Also, what necessitated the breakup of that relationship and any learnings we might now put to use from that breakup. I was up for doing this. I mean, why not? Always an interesting project. And for me, ever the completest, I decided to include all the significant relationships I had ever had from the age of 12 up to now. And I called it my baker's dozen or my uh, cupid's dozen. L was not number 12, by the way. Uh, she was potentially going to become lucky number 13. But that was not my call to make as had been made by her pretty clear by now. Because although we, we were communicating back and forth every day, umpteen times a day, in all sorts of registers, professional, romantic, sexual, even sharing the intimacies of our domestic lives, truly together, maybe not forever, but certainly in the now, in our WhatsApp and Zoom electric dreams now, Elle made it very clear all the way through that she was ambivalent. But is ambivalence not what we, or at least our minds, run on, feed on, particularly us shrinks, also astro us astrological fence-sitters, her Libra sun, my less overt fence-sitting Libra moon, but fence-sitters nonetheless? Isn't ambivalence going to be par for the course no matter what we get up to, and especially if that getting up to-ness has no animal body. I know it really bonding. does sound like I'm masturbating, but I'm, if it's I'm not. All just this, virtual. this is not just a sound of me masturbating. Which it was. So I did my relationship MOT recording for L the day after she suggested it, and I've put it up on this telling stream if you have a couple of hours to dedicate to nothing much. And um, yeah, so when was that? That was recorded on Friday when L's friend. Ben was visiting and spending a few days in the shack, as she calls it, her little wood cabin out in the middle of nowhere, very, you know, very Walden. Uh, and the plan was, at least before we went into tier four lockdown, that Ben would spend two days with her and then she would make her way to the mummery in Kent. And that was a name I had come up with um, because in the mummery, she would not be able to communicate through voice notes with me, but I would continue sending readings maybe uh, and maybe you know we, we we just go back to that sort of somewhat parsimonious textual exchange which i guess is how we'd started to get to the mummery l had to pass through london by train which also meant we were finally finally going to meet not for that weekend of sex and face-to-face -face talk and hopefully lots of lying in bed together reading poetry this to each other. This is still not masturbation. Smuggling and listening to music or dancing in the living room in our pyjamas. I was slapping my tips of my that. fingers together. Not that kind of meeting, no. That meeting had also been planned a couple of weeks before, but was somewhat abruptly put on ice uh, a couple of weeks later after my parents and her friends hearing of our death-defying plans, had essentially stepped in to cock-block or, or fanny-block us by pointing out that even if there was a 0.1% chance we might infect each other or the people we loved with the virus, it was probably best that we kept our physical selves to ourselves and wait. Be 
patient, they said to us, just for another month or two, or three, or maybe until my 50th birthday, June 2021, when surely by then, even us 40-somethings and 50-somethings would have access to the new vaccine. And as much as I had hated the suggestion at the time, in fact, had fought against it like a petulant child, I had finally decided to heed the collective wisdom of those not taken over by the driving duress of uh, my love drug. And so after a phone call with Elle, we decided to shelve our weekend of sexual exploration and opt instead for a walk in the park, Hyde Park. And having decided this, we then got on with the planning and the fantasizing about that too. But at least we would meet on Sunday, Sunday the 20th of December, and walk hand in hand through Hyde Park, talking and laughing, and maybe even dance a little bit together on plein air, enjoying our erotic and fun-charged energies in real time, in the, in the now, in the now of the now, energies that had been somewhat asynchronous up till, up till then. Because when I sent a message to her, she was often asleep, and when she returned a message to me, I was usually out walking the dog or writing or with a client. We lived our relationship, if that's what you want to call it, and I would still call it that, in the gaps of our lives and almost wholly through electronic means. We were almost never communicating in the here and now, and as peculiar as that sounds, from what I can tell, this form of relating has become, especially in COVID-2020, as much the norm as anything else. So there we were, the two of us, living quite similar lives, but alone in our distant worlds, 96 miles apart, and it could have been 960 or 9,600 miles as far as I was concerned. In fact, I would often look at the dotted blue line stretching from my door to hers on Google Maps, 32 hours to walk it via the A40, 9 hours, 20 minutes on the national cycle route, 2.5 hours by train, the same by car, though neither of us drive, and... When I looked at and reflected on the on the quasi-impossible logistics of a meeting, I would often sigh deeply and somewhat self-pityingly, a bit like this, <sighs> clicking between the various options, each of them totally unfeasible, but fantastically, as in fantasy, imminent too. If we could just practice patience. Patience. So on Friday, when Al was off for the day with Ben and I was really missing her morning messages, we'd got into the habit, you see, of, of doing these morning voice, voice notes before each of us got on with the day, and then maybe something, well, in fact, always something more immersive and absorbing in the evenings, I sat down and recorded the length and breadth of my so-called love life. I'm not an especially patient person. I don't know if you can tell. In fact, when I heard Uncle Cover in an interview with Maybe Gray talking with reference to his own long-distance virtual relationship with a new love, talking about the necessity to seize the sexy day, even if that day felt as if it might be out of reach, I sent Uncle C's voice to Elle, sent it to her, in fact, on the Friday night, as much to say, is this not us, to a T? For we'd both found ourselves dittoing these kinds of sentiments many, many times in the weeks preceding. It's just a maddening to, to just, to wait. And, and you wanna, you don't wanna wait in life. You wanna just 
be in, in your bliss now, whatever that bliss is, and find bliss in the present hey. and in the present's hey. limitations. But at least we had the togetherness of our electric dreams. Electric in all the senses of that word. Here's a slightly spicier voice note, one of Elle's favorites, the most orgasm-producing one, shall we say. If I remember, cor- if I remember correctly, I had sent it to her first thing in the morning, or maybe last thing at night whilst lying in bed, reading a book by a former monk about sex. And I think I want to include this voice note to show you the, the tenor of our conversations, because I, I know what's coming at the end of this episode. I know how this one ends. And to be perfectly frank, I'm troubled about how your perceptions of me will be changed when she, Elle, reads the words she wrote to me on Sunday evening. A quick note before you listen to me in horn dog mode. You will also hear a certain shifting around of bedclothes in this recording. Elle, and by implication myself, got very turned on by the idea that I was possibly touching my extremities whilst making the audio. But unfortunately, or fortunately, when my mind is fully engaged with language, when I have, uh, shall we say, a, a mental hard-on, the only masturbation that's occurring is occurring between my ears. And besides, I constructed this particular voice note because I thought it might excite her. I thought it might get her off, and it did. And that's essentially what turned me on. Ain't I a saint? I'm not enlightened, but I'm a saint, right? But I was rewarded for my saintliness with some delicious videos and voice notes that followed from my beloved in return. In the soul of sex, Thomas More writes about Anasirma, which is uh, from the ancient Greek, composed of, uh, the etymology of it is um, up or against or back, and then the word skirt, Sirma is skirt. So it's sort of the, it's, it's the gesture of lifting the skirt up. Um, and you see this in lots of works of art, a kind of flashing, I guess, a sort of, kind of exhibitionist type of uh, energy. And he writes, Anasirma is not just the exposure of the genitals from the front, but also special revelation of the backside, which obviously plays an important role in sex. Aphrodite was known as Calipagos, the beautiful backside. In statuary, she's shown lifting her dress and looking over her shoulder at her buttocks. In antiquity, this gesture was considered a powerful apotropaic act. In other words, one that wards off evil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, get on with it. This is this is the part of the podcast where, where people are looking for some smut, right? Just just get cut to the chase. And as I was reading this, I imagined you deciding to engage in this spirit of play and the spirit of Anasirma. And uh, maybe standing in front of your drawer or wherever it is you keep your underwear and thinking, am I going to take this picture with or without? I'm going to fade it out there as it feels, even for me who likes to kind of, you know, wear my heart on my sleeve, 
spill it all out, spill my guts out, etc. Even for me, it feels a little bit too intimate, a little bit too sacred, for want of a better word, to play you anymore. You may have realized by now that I send out a lot of voice messages to lots of different people. It's my favorite thing to do. I'm like a voice message jukebox, you know, just like, hey, what about this? And boom, you've got a voice message. That's because no matter how I manifest physically in your eyes, I am essentially a, fur, a furless, featherless, and at least for now, wingless bird. Wingless, unless you're counting these two appendages extending from my shoulder girdles, my homo sap branches, if you like, that flap around my head in the mornings when I dance to naff 80s tunes or the Hamilton soundtrack uh, of late, uh, body popping with a kind of wop, 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 uh, greater sage grouse vibe, or maybe high-stepping it to helpless, like uh, a blue-footed booby launched by nothing more than its own amorous energies to perform its silly little strutting dance for a potential mate. In fact, even whilst recording this section here, the one you're listening to right here, I had to stop in the middle of the following sentence and return to this morning's blue-footed booby dance whilst playing for the umpteenth time, Helpless, sung by the original Hamilton cast, assisted by The Roots, to Jimmy Fallon on Zoom at the end of June in Anno Domini COVID this year here, where everyone, apart from the guitarist and the tuba dude, are, are playing on homemade instruments, you know, rubber bands stretched between fingers, pots and pans, upended waste paper baskets, beanbag cushions, glassy ornaments, tapped flacked with those human animal vocalizations uh, riding above them all, you know, the hands and the chopsticks and all the other implements rhythmically a flutter, all aligned to the same glorious and sexy musical vitality. I mean, it's, I don't know. I think it's just joy, 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 joy. If you watch this or listen to this and don't feel joy, then you're basically, you're dead inside. It's as simple as that. And then suddenly, <laughs> there's Lin-Manuel Miranda doing his, you know, his mid-song thang. I don't have a dollar to my name, an acre of land, a troop to command, a dollar for fame. All I have is my honor, a tolerance for pain, a couple of college credits, and my top-notch brain insane. Your family. There is a certain level of irony to this in-song rap, uh, I, 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 I realized today. There probably probably wasn't there when Miranda wrote it. You know, dollars to his name, 80 million. Acres of land, many. Troops to command, 3.5 million. That's the amount of followers Lin-Manuel Miranda has on Twitter. And as, and as one of that troop, I suspect we would probably do almost anything legal and loving for Lin. Pine of blood, you got it. Pine of semen, you got it. A black woman, or any woman for that matter, as next president of America. Let's make this happen, Lynn. While I'm loving Lynn, can I also just say that I so relate to that couple of college credits on my top notch brain pickup line? I mean, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say top notch, but I'm pretty sure. <laughs> It's the best thing about me. In the Eros Stakes, my idea serrated brain, if you like, is most definitely the chief sexual ornament I have. And by sexual ornament, I'm talking Charles Darwin, Descent of Man, Aesthetic Evolution by May Choice. Uh, thank you, Richard Prom, whose book, The Evolution of, of Beauty, is, is one I've got on, on Audible at the moment. <laughs> 
And of course, the most crucial social decision that birds make is whom to mate with. Birds use their preferences for particular plumages, colors, songs, and displays to choose their mates. The result is the evolution of sexual ornaments, and birds have a lot of them. Scientifically speaking, sexual beauty encompasses all of the observable features that are desirable in a mate. Over millions of years and among thousands of avian species, mate choice has resulted in an explosive diversity of sexual beauty in birds. Ornaments are distinct in function from other parts of the body. They do not function solely in ecological or physiological interactions with the physical world. Rather, sexual ornaments function in interactions with observers through the way in which sensory perceptions and cognitive evaluations by other individual organisms create a subjective experience in those organisms. For me, it's very simple. I just like to sing, end of. I like to sing, sing too. This is me belting out Tom Waits' dirt in the ground on my spin bike in the freezing greenhouse this morning. And here's the morning chant I do every day for about... 50 minutes or so before taking Max for a walk. Stay present. Let go. And enjoy. 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 But I also like to do what I call my jibber-jabber, which is this, this, this thing here, allowing the language to pass through me in ways that hopefully amuse or even occasionally delight the two ears attached to my head, and then at some later point, hopefully yours too. There's a long poem by W.S. Graham called What is the Language Using Us For? that I have memorized for the most part. And there's one section in it that speaks most clearly to, to this, to this to this very, very deep need in me, in us, I believe, but particularly in me, to communicate. To communicate what it means to be alive, for me, because that's all I know, um, from the inside out, anyway. Uh, in the simple hope that you too will recognize what it means to be alive for you, and, and maybe even feel more alive for it. Here's a recital whilst hanging out with some feathered friends in the garden. What is the language using us for? It uses us all, and in its dark of dark actions, selections differ. I am not making a fool of myself for you. What I am making is a place for language in my life, which I want to be a real place, seeing I have to put up with it anyhow. 
What are communication's mistakes in the magic medium doing to us? It matters only insofar as we want to be telling each other alive about each other alive. I want to be able to speak and sing and make my soul occur in front of the best and be respected for that and even be understood by the ones I like who are dead. Hmm, sirens, there's always sirens. In episode one of this Electric Dreams 12 Days of Christmas DAZE uh, strand, I, I played a bit of me reading Stephen Forrest's Libra Archetype 2L. I also, after drinking my Lavazza and eating my biscuits, I, I also read the Gemini profile. And I felt, in fact, we both felt, that they were so identifiable in terms of what we recognize as our essential souls, if you like, that they could have been written by someone who had known us ever since we had bawled our way into this world. In fact, here is that person for me, my 72-year-old mother reading, at my request, bless her, some bits of the Gemini section, which she most relates to. Right, so I'm not going to go in any order, but I'm going to pick out the things that I find. Um, okay. The twins are in the world to gather experience, to let the miracle of life work directly on their hearts. There's no room in them for complacency, for dogmatic options, opinions that shield them from chaos and mystery. With their insatiable curiosity, they can pack a lifetime with experiences. But the horse they ride is wild. It can carry them to a far horizon or keep them grounded. Communication is a two-way street. Gemini must remember that. We speak what we know, but we sometimes hear something we don't know. To listen, to absorb the world, that is the twins' strategy. Speaking is useful to them only if it accelerates that process. Curiosity. That is the ultimate Geminian resource. A sense of the world's wonder. A childlike appreciation of each dewdrop, each teardrop, each unprecedented um, flake of snow. Without that, the twins are nothing but chatter. And without overflapping my wings and excessive shaking of my dark blue booby feet, I was, I have been of the impression that Eliza was quite into the sufficiently notched brain and its ability to produce sexy voice notes. But, I mean, who's to know? Particularly at this point, who's to know if someone is just blowing or has just been blowing hot air up one's egoic <sighs> butthole? <sighs> Lovers, as we know, swim in a sea of compliments. That's how they create their own little alcove for two, uh, the couple bubble, that insular love space, that metaphysical change, uh, chamber, which hopefully also leads to the bedchamber at some point. For example, here are some of the compliments we had been swimming in over the last month, voiced by the series on our phones. Your voice makes me wet. Even if you were just reading the phone book, there would still be this instant want you inside me gush from the bottom section of my lady bits. 
It's fantastic. It's like this blissful fire coursing all through my body, and keeping my cock at some sort of state of ever-ready alertness. I've basically just lain around all weekend in the shack, apart from your bike ride, thinking about you, and imagining us together getting up to all sorts. I'm drained from the amount of self-pleasuring I've needed to do. So, all good, until it's not. Because even as this was proceeding at a deliciously frenetic pace, we both knew that the mummery was coming up. In fact, here's me talking about it a few days ago in the last non-episode, you know, the, the, the telling about the telling that was still to be told. When I set out to do this series, I had a sort of a vague arc in my head, uh, a, a sort of a storyline um, based on what I thought was going to happen in the next two weeks, which is essentially that my beloved would go off to the mummery, as we're calling it, which is um, her mother's nunnery in Kent, where she's forbidden to, well, she's auto-forbidden herself to, um, to, to continue sharing voice notes as we've been doing because mum is paranoid and, um, and, and still in love with her ex-boyfriend Wayne. Not mum's ex-boyfriend Wayne, but this is Elle's ex-boyfriend Wayne. And um, really doesn't want Elle to be doing anything with anyone who's not Wayne. Um, I know it sounds a bit nutty, but it, honestly, what, what you'll see when I explain it, it will all be like completely clear and very, very relatable. Okay, so let me, let me try and make this all clear and relatable for you. When I say paranoid, I'm not necessarily using the term in its most jocular sense of the word. Al and I started our relating as peers, doing peer supervision together. And when Elle's mother found out about this, even before any romance was on the cards, and let me also just say, Elle is 45 years old here, just in case you're thinking she's 12. But anyway, um, when Elle's mother found out about this, that we were doing supervision, straight supervision, nothing more, um, this did not stop the 65-year-old progenitor of my beloved looking me up online, looking at my therapist's website, the kind of site where traumatized and deeply unhappy individuals contact me all the time because presumably I come across on there as somewhat sane and caring, but not sane and caring enough for Elle's mother, who after seeing a picture of my almost 50-year-old noggin, uh, said the following to her daughter. Be careful. You're very attractive on Zoom. I don't know, is that with the implication that she's not that attractive off Zoom? Anyway, be careful. I don't want this man getting any ideas about you. I know it's only peer supervision for now, darling, but I sense you're interested in him and I don't feel he's safe. I think he might be an abuser. No, really, there's something creepy about this one. Trust me. In other words, Al's mother believed, probably still believes, that uh, I might turn out to be, in fact, maybe I am, something like her husband. Al's dad. And Al's dad was not only creepy, by the sounds of it, he was a total shit. According to Al, though, this is just how mum, a fragile nar narcissist, as, as Al likes to call her, uh, this fragile narcissist who birthed her, uh, this fragile narcissist who is still deeply in love with Al's ex-partner Wayne and has not yet forgiven Al for leaving him, and hey, what can you do? Fragile narcissist nonsense, right? According to Al, this is just how mum talks, so hey. Hey. Whatever. Hey. 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 <laughs> And, and if you don't know what a fragile or covert narcissist is, here's a primer 
using some diagnostic jibber-jabber, okay? So, Al's mum frequently feels unhappy, depressed, or hopeless. Al's mum is overly critical of others. Al's mum has exaggerated sense of self-importance. Al's mum often feels anxious. Al's mum often feels envious. Al's mum has feelings of emptiness. Al's mum has a strong sense of entitlement. Al's mum often has feelings of inadequacy, inferiority, or feeling like a failure. Oh, blimey, poor woman. Sorry, I'm just having some... Uh, it looks like mulled wine, but it's not. It's the... Um, it's the Tea Pigs Super Berry Tea. I'm not. I'm not a big. I'm not a big fan of 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 uh, fruit teas. But I have to tell you, this tea pig super berry tea is just very berry good. But anyway, compared to what I've heard about Dad, Mum, <laughs> as far as I can tell, is the salt of the earth, a darling, a sweetie, a gem. If Mum is a fragile or covert narcissist. Dad, no longer on this planet, uh, would probably have been diagnosed by a psychiatrist as having something like, I don't know, riffle through DSM-5, intermittent dis explosive disorder, something like that. When Elle talks of her father, I can, I can tell that she would so love to have someone, maybe me, but I can't because I'm not a psychiatrist, slap intermittent explosive disorder onto his exclusive brethren ass. Side note. Uh, exclusive Brethren, subset of the Christian Evangelical Movement, generally described as the Plymouth Bre 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 Brethren. Google it if you must. Intermittent explosive disorder in common parlance, well in my parlance, translates as a bully and a shit. I prefer the language of bully, shit, lost and depressed, but Al is big on those uh, big, you know, on those big official diagnostic terms, being a, a behavioral psychologist to boot and so suffice to say with a lost depressed paranoid mother and an explosive bully and shit of a father she is not especially trusting of men in general and neither is her mother but here's the thing when it comes to explosive bullying not really my shtick and understandably Al does not know this yet about her one-month lover. She does not know that I'm I'm more the nudger, the nudger, the slightly snarky shit-stirrer. That's my true skill when I feel irked in love. I really like this line from Adam Phillips where he writes, as animals, human beings must feel uniquely deprived if they want so much from each other and gradually end up asking for so little. Hmm. Also another way of saying that, as human animals with inexhaustibly and boundlessly desiring minds, we hardly ever get what we want. Particularly in love. Particularly in love in a time of COVID 96 miles apart. As far as I'm aware though, we're all a little bit fragile, a little bit covertly narcissistic. I am not an enlightened being, this much I've already made clear, and nor am I a psychiatrist whose bread and butter literally relies on these labels because without a diagnosis, health insurance won't pay. But what I say is this, this is the human mind. This is the, as far as I can tell, this is the human animal. I haven't read a mental health diagnosis that I can't identify with to some extent. I may not be dysfunctionally gripped by that set of symptoms at this moment, but 
I'm a human animal. Mom's a human animal. Dad's a human animal. And that means we share more, I think, in our fucked upness as well as in our non-fucked upness than not. To wit, here's my mother being a tiny bit paranoid about this podcast, not realizing that an anonymous series of tellings delivered to 10 unknown subscribers who probably don't even listen to the damn thing, certainly not, not Christmas time, is really not going to get me into trouble, no matter what I say on here, and especially if I'm thoughtful about what I say on here, which I am. I was just wondering whether you should actually be naming and in your podcasts you know every time you say every time you say, i think to myself mm, maybe you shouldn't actually be naming them i know and even they're not common names but you know just just keep it to keep it to or just give and a different name i mean you can call jane or or, or julia or anything it can be candy it can be mavis it can be miss buttercup anything you want it to be similarly with can be uh Charles can be Thornton, can be Sir Harry Greaves if you want him to be. Mm, I, I don't think I would use and in uh, in my podcasts. Maybe not. Just just come up with a different name for in a different name for fish if you mention them together, you know, or just say him and her or whatever you want to call them. Okay, bye. I think I mentioned a tiff. Here it is. I'll try not to bore you with it. Lovers' tiffs are just the most fucking boring things in the world to anyone else but the people concerned because they're basically just the ways in which were we not controlled by language, we might go something like this. <laughs> Something like that. Kissy, kissy, kissy. So here's the tip, which hopefully makes sense now that I've given you all the relatable stuff. Uh, so on Friday, Elle spent the day and the evening with Ben. And I dealt with my sudden withdrawal symptoms from the love drug by recording for Elle her requested relationship MOT voice note. And at this point, it was pretty clear to me that I was addicted. The drug having been administered every few hours in the last month, us having lived in each other's throats and ears and all the other orifices, though not physically, would it be fair to say that most human animals would be addicted at this point? Maybe not. It felt though, that she was addicted to. It sounded like she was addicted to. So that's all good, because that's what our culture calls a romantic relationship, AKA the honeymoon period. So to attenuate my addictive cravings for contact with Elle, I sat down and did a rundown of my past relationships, which I now suspect 
that suggestion had not necessarily come from a place of, ooh, fun game, yeah, but rather wanting to check out for herself, or maybe for her mother, God forbid, whether I might not simply be a younger and slightly more Jewish version of her father, the shit, the, what's it called, intermittent explosive disorder guy, which maybe I am, a bully and a shit. Not words I would necessarily identify with, but who's telling this tale, right? <laughs> Unreliable narrator. Uh-uh. And, and who's not telling this tale? So maybe in the realm of Eros, it's Jekyll and Hyde. And maybe the, I don't know which, I can never remember which one is which, but maybe anyway, the, the, the shit is me. I don't know. Let's listen to Elle's podcast and see what she has to say. Ah, she doesn't have a podcast. But wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if her side of the story could be out there too? Uncle Cover in a, in a recently remarked that in the future, everyone will have a podcast. So I'm afraid you're going to have to wait for the, uh, for the future for that. But let's put it this way. I wasn't a bully or a shit last Friday. And so I got rewarded by my beloved for giving her the space and time, which I also wanted to do, I got rewarded on Friday night with an especially loving and communicative set of exchanges after Ben had taken off to his Airbnb. And as usual, while she slept, loved up as I was, I sent a couple of audio quotes to her from some interviews I've been watching on YouTube. And I'll play those for you maybe in the next telling. I also sent her some plans for how we'd get through the mummery period together and, you know, also, you know, oh, I'm so looking forward to seeing you in two days time, all of that kind of stuff. Then, waking up on Saturday morning at about 7 o'clock, I saw on WhatsApp that Miss Buttercup was listening to my messages. And I guess I expected, expectation, expectation, the demon of Eros. I expected a reply of sorts. Maybe just a, I don't know, a thumbs up or a winking emoji or a 20-second voice note or something longer. And I didn't get any of it. And so a few hours later, even though we'd agreed I wouldn't make contact, I'd leave her and Ben alone, I did make contact and I said something a little bit pissy along the lines of it being a non-work day and surely soul bro Ben would be okay with her giving her anima cara a little bit of attention, which I suspect she didn't like. And I know this because silence from her side, ongoing silence. So I then sent more WhatsApp messages and then a couple of emails later on in the day wondering if she was being a little bit petulant, even though I was the one who was being petulant at this point, and also a little bit punitive, and I still didn't hear anything back. And then, hmm, and then 24 hours later, I, I got an email from Elle, here voiced by Siri. On Sunday, the 20th of December, 2020 at 2108, L. Bookings, at fullname.com road. Good evening, Steve. In response to your request that I let you know why I have not returned emails over the last 24 hours, it is because I have been in out-of-office mode since yesterday's announcement of Tier 4. This has also necessitated my focus to be on complex, back and forth with various family members. Furthermore, my sister-in-law has become very unwell indeed and is awaiting COVID test results. And I too was up several times in the night coughing heavily. I thought we had agreed Steve that in the days leading up to me leaving for my mother's, we would ease off on the amount and intensity of our daily back and forth. I told you that these would be days in which I would be with one of my very closest friends with a very serious health condition. Someone who in fact now has an even more serious diagnosis than I had initially thought. 
had we not agreed that we would ease off on the amount and the intensity of comms we've been sharing with each other. On both sides, you have failed to follow this mutual agreement, and persisted in whatsapping me video clips to comment on yesterday whilst I was with Ben. I did respond to your message later on in the day, even though we had agreed that I needed to give all my time to Ben. But that appears to have been insufficient for you Steve. You also know, because we have discussed this a number of times, that this is the first Christmas my mother will be spending without my father and that last Christmas was on his hospital ward. And given the recent suicide of my brother's very close friend, I fail to understand how in the weekend before Christmas, with tier 4 lockdown announced, you would persist in sending me a number of communications which you knew I would have no time to respond to. Apostrophe. I had made it very very explicit to you all along that I had been out of my previous partnership for only a short space of time and so very much needed to prioritize peace for my nervous system, particularly in view of my previous ME and CFS relapses in response to stress, and so was definitely not looking to date. This was stated in the first week of our relationship. I very much wish that your mind would have enabled us to sustain a balanced level of connecting. A healthy balance and healthy communication in any kind of connection is, is you know, a very top priority and value for me, and I have not experienced your communication as consistently healthy towards myself in the short time I have been in communication with you, given that I have a responsibility to look after my psychological, emotional and physical well-being and safety, and given that I am also now concerned about your own mind's psychological stability Steve in relation to me. I now need to make a very clear and formal cease and desist request. Please do not send me any further communications by any means. It is with a very heavy heart but a wise mind that I do this. Apostrophe. I sincerely wish you healing and peace in the future. L. Most of the ways we describe people, and all of the ways we judge and diagnose people, writes Adam Phillips, involve an account of the kind of relationship they have with the rules. And yet, the first love stories that taught us how to love, such as Romeo and Juliet, are more about risk than complacency, about the ways in which desire takes people out of themselves and into a new life that feels like more life than any they have ever had before. The sanity lost in the madness of love is the sanity of knowing who one is. Our aliveness, our excitement about life, is thus depleted by the need never to endanger ourselves. Puberty, which no one ever recovers from any more than they recover from sexuality that ushers it in, is everyone's first experience of a sentient madness. Sanity is a story told by the survivors. Sanity if it comes at all, comes afterwards. End of quote. Hmm. So here's a bit of sanity, I think. My reply to Elle a few hours later, because her message came in whilst I was actually working on the first episode, and ridiculously, I realise now, I was, I was going to send it to her thinking she might enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Nuts. On Sunday, the 20th of December, 2020 at 23.45, Steve W. Jibberjabber at gmail.com wrote, Wow. Message received loud and clear. 
Thank you for clarifying your place and position. I appreciate you bringing me up to speed. I didn't receive any of your responses that you sent to me on WhatsApp yesterday, L. Not one. Dunno what that's about. Technology issues question mark. Hence the flurry of flustered and anxious emails in the interim. Oh well, that's neither here nor there at this point. Steve. Hey. 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 Romantic moment. After seeing the nature documentary, we walked down Canyon Road onto the plaza of art galleries and high-end clothing stores where the orange trees are fragrant in the summer night and the pink adobe walls glow flesh-like in the dark. It is just our second date and we sit down on a bench not looking at each other, holding hands, and if I were a bull penguin right now, I would lean over and vomit softly into the mouth of my beloved. And if I were a peacock, I'd flex my gluteal muscles to erect and spread the quills on my Cinemax tail. And if she were a female walking stick bug, she might insert her hypodermic proboscis delicately into my neck and inject me with a rich hormonal sedative before attaching her egg sac to my thoracic undercarriage. And if I were a young chimpanzee, I would break off a nearby tree limb and smash all the windows in the plaza jewelry stores. And if she were a Brazilian leopard frog, she would wrap her impressive tongue three times around my right thigh and pummel me lightly against the surface of our pond. And I would know her feelings were sincere. Instead, we sit a while in silence until she remarks that in the relative context of tortoises and iguanas, human males seem to be actually rather expressive. And I say that female crocodiles really don't receive enough credit for their gentleness. Then she suggests that it is time for us to go to get some ice cream cones and eat them. <laughs> <laughs>